It has come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. you've reached the talk tank the official LSE entrepreneurs podcast where we delve into the minds of those who think live and breathe outside the box my name is tina so and i'll be your host for today welcome to the artistpreneur series where we stay clear of conventions and turn to the creative hearted we tune into the process behind the writers the performers and the visual storytellers do they confront us with reality or allow us to escape from it Today's guest is co-founder of Utter Group, a fashion consultancy firm and co-founder and creator of Not Just Another Store, a concept retail space in Shoreditch that proves the high street is not dying. Joelle Adebayo. Not Just Another Store detaches from all the rules played upon existing retail spaces by creating events, installations and exhibitions for creative communities and currently stock over 30 personally sourced independent and emerging designers, artists and brands from all over the world ranging from menswear and women's wear to lifestyle. So welcome, Joelle. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. It's great to have you on. So we've introduced you, but we'd like to hear it from the man himself. Who is Joelle? So Joe is just a regular guy from, from Shoreditch. I actually grew up in Hackney. So I grew up in, in Hoxton in East London. I I was uh well, you know, I was in Hoxton when it wasn't so cool to be here, where you know you was, you know, scared to walk the streets of Shoreditch at night. Um, but you know, Shoreditch has always been super multicultural. I've always kind of being that guy that loved fashion but went to university and did an academic degree and then did a postgraduate in another ac academic degree um before i kind of fell into fashion which has always been something i've been really driven and, and passionate about um so really joe is just a regular guy like everyone else <laughs> i love it i love it so let's flash back to Joelle, age 18, can you tell us a bit about how you got to where you are today? You know, university, first job, the whole shebang. Um, I actually did uh, an undergrad degree in law. Um, I did an LLB in law at the University of Essex for three years um, and then did a, a postgraduate degree in politics. Um, and on graduating, I, oh wait, just just to kind of rewind actually after graduating my law degree i decided against going to law school i guess to the detriment and the upset of my mother who really wanted me to be a lawyer and um i kind of said i'm not doing that um and so i went i went and worked for top shop full time for a, a year and um i just was I was loving just working in a retail environment with uh, a bunch of really cool creatives, but I kind of felt undervalued with the amount of skill and uh, not to sell myself short. I felt like um, working in a retail environment was, you know, was was not what I was born to do. So I got a bit confused and I was like, okay, let me go and do a postgraduate. So I did a postgraduate degree in politics, worked as a civil servant um, for two two and a half years, and then. I guess I, again, felt like there was more to my life. There was more calling to me than working for someone else. And I was so passionate about wanting to do something for myself that would benefit uh, the society. And I felt like I could do that. And it didn't necessarily have to be in an academic calling. It could be in a creative field. 
um, I decided to work in fashion because I've always loved fashion, but I decided to launch Attar as a platform for new designers and a, a platform for consumers like myself looking for something new in the fashion industry, but not having to pay over the odds for it. So that's how I fell into fashion. Um, but 18 year old Joe, I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I wanted to be a barrister wearing the wig and the gown. So I've always wanted to play dress up, but I'm just playing dress up in fashion now. <laughs> so, yeah. Bringing us on to Utter and not just another store. Can you tell us a bit about how Utter Group and not just another store have evolved to where it is today? Sure. Like, so when, when we launched Utter five, five years ago, Otto was, like I said, meant to be a platform for new and emerging designers um, who were trying to break into the market. The market was very overcrowded. It was, it was full of, you know, the high street, you know, telling you what you needed to buy, what you needed to wear. And fast fashion became the thing, you know, boohoo, pretty little thing. All these brands were all about buy now, buy now, buy now the culture really stifled the noise of creatives and for me i really wanted to buy from cool independent designers one because i felt like independent designers made me cool you know the fact that i was searching for new items that no one else had made me cool and then the stories behind those independent brands you know really resonated with my story so i felt like there was a synergy between fashion and the expression of one's life. And I think that's what Utter was. It was meant to be that platform that allowed designers to meet innovators, meet and consumers. Um, so that was that was Utter, but it was only meant to be an online store. Um, but what we found was because we was a new platform selling new designers, we was we were struggling. Our price point was a bit, you know, was a bit high, and we were struggling to sell. So we decided to create and pop-ups um, to give us a credibility to be able to sell better and to reach our consumers. So that's how Utter and Not Just Another Store came about. And about two years ago, Not Just Another Store became its own entity, would I say, when I guess the high street was dying. You know, people stopped going to the high street. People wanted to shop online. People wanted the convenience of shopping online. And um, we felt like the high street wasn't dying. It was just the methods in which people used the high street that was dying. So we, we decided to reinvigorate shopping experiences in retail spaces. We discussed doing workshops in our spaces, selling art, selling lifestyle products, selling homeware, doing innovative workshops and exhibitions that brought people in, that looked at the different facets of people's lifestyle rather than just trying to sell them clothes. So that's that's the synergy between Attar, which champions independent designers and not just another store that champions consumers and the 360 lifestyle of consumers and bringing those two together. I think it's so interesting how you started off just with an online presence and through that realized the value and the potential of retail because there's a lot of criticism as you mentioned that brick and mortar stores are going to die out especially with covid and i don't right. know if you heard recently but in germany there was a huge department chain of malls which were about to go bankrupt and the government scooped right. in to save them and this was met with a lot of criticism i mean with how fast globalization and marketization is happening where we feel like on a day-to-day -day we are badgered by 
the the future is the internet the if the, the future is i don't know like you know e-communication i feel like we've lost track of human relations and so we automatically um connect the high street with the old but what we're not reimagining is the use of the high street and the way the high street actually brings community together what i've seen doing this COVID and this pandemic is actually the power of community and the power of supporting your local meat shop because actually there's a cross marketing that happens when you're a champion in your community. There's a looking after each other that happens when you're looking after your community. So that's where the value of the hashi comes in. But I feel like where corporates and companies have messed up in reinvesting Vigorating and reimagining the high street is that they forgot to to bring the consumer along when they were innovating the high street. They decided to focus on the internet and they forgot how to meet the customers' needs in stores and in communities. Because we're not just about selling clothes; we're all about how we can enrich each other's lifestyle. So I'm curious, how do you build your team? What are some of the most important things you look out for while hiring well for me i must say for me um i look for personality first before i look for skill um because if you look at my background i'm not someone that should be working let alone running a fashion business um so as an individual who came from an academic background into a creative industry, I feel like this creative industry has accepted me for who I am and I'm continuously learning. So when I hire people, either for the store or any project that we're doing, I'm always looking at their personality because I believe that skill set can be taught um, as long as they are driven for the vision and the mission and our aims and objectives as a, as a company. If you can believe my vision and if you can believe in my vision and my mission and you feel like you can you can add value to that that's what i look for first and then i look at what you can bring to the team because i'm always looking to learn and i think my employees or should i call them my team of my employees because that feels weird but my team understand that i'm such a learned person like i'm always about learning from them so we there's no ego everyone that works here i want them to be relatable i want consumers to come in and see the diversity in our in our team and i want people to see themselves and the people that work here i want their personality to shine through i want people to be able to be like that girl's a bit odd or that, that guy's a bit cool and quirky and you know that i i learned something today you know um from 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 that girl or whatever. and um that's really important to me so anyone who works in the store aren't people that have necessarily worked in retail before they're always people who have worked in the creative industry but they've never worked in retail because i've just got this idea that people who've worked in retail have this mentality about consumer relationship with with stores it's almost every consumer is a is like cash um rather than humans and for me i don't look at consumers as bank i see them as people so i am always really conscious of hiring people who've worked in retail environment that have conditioned them to sell 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 um i want them to be engaged with everyone that comes in how's your week going what you've been up to what do you do um do you know that we do this you i think based on what you've told me you'd be interested in being involved with this workshop it's all about understanding the individual before trying to sell them a product 
If you're always thinking about selling them a product, they might buy a product from you the first time around. But when they get home and they look at that product again, they might not come back because they felt like they were forced into buying that product rather than you getting to know them and understanding what they like and therefore buying the product as a result of that. So that's really important to me, you know? And your store is actually the store that I bought the most number of items from. And I think, oh, that's yeah, nice. I think part <laughs> of that is because you value me as a human, not just as yeah. a customer. And I've been in there before and yeah. I've just tried things on, I'm exploring and you've said like, no, take your time, really think about it. Cause we want this to be something yeah. that you wear for years to come. So yeah. Yeah, I, sure. I really love that. And I think that really does come across and not just you, but everyone in the shop really embraces yeah. that. And I, and I just, just, just to add to that, and I know that sounds anti-corporate mentality of, are you crazy? You need to make as much money as possible. And, and I, I, I know it is, it is to our detriment sometimes, but I feel like it keeps the, the community coming back because we want the community to champion us. We want them to be our evangelists. So we want them to go away and talk about us in a good way. We want them to think about not just another store and think about it as a happy place to come and shop or just to talk to the people who work there. And I know the bigger we get, the more difficult that that ethos and that value would be it will be more difficult to instill that, but we are going to try our hardest to continue to do that. I'm always going to make sure that that is in the forefront of the, the way we approach consumers because they are people first. They're not just money, they're people first. And it's one thing to be trendy and it's one thing to be innovative. And to be an innovator, you need to take risks. And daily we are continuously taking risks. And I see this as my gamble. And whether it pays off, now, in five years, in 10 years, it don't matter to me. What matters is the longevity and the legacy we build for 20 years to come. Um, and the ability for us to be able to, I'm going to swear now, fob off, um, I don't know, red tape makes us cool. I can wake up tomorrow and be like, let's switch this up or let's do this this way. And I don't have to go through a whole bunch of red tape to do it. I can just say, hey, our consumers and our community are interested in X now. Let's find a way to integrate that into the not just another store value. And I'm able to do that because the not just another store ethos and value is about versatility because human behavior is versatile. It's fragile. It's up, it's down, it's normal. We go through different emotions, several emotions in the day. So why couldn't your outlet the places you go reflect your mood on a day-to-day. Not only are you able to create this innovative, forward-thinking style, but you're also thinking differently in the way that you market as a retailer. And in particular, I've noticed that you've done something that no other retail store, to my knowledge, has done, which is your try-before-you-buy service. And to our listeners who don't know about this, maybe because nowhere else is doing it, not just another store have started letting you pick items that you're interested in online and then they'll deliver them to you. You can try them on, see how you feel, take a few mirror selfies. And then a week later, if there's anything that you don't want to keep, they'll arrange a delivery, a collection, and you can send back any items that didn't vibe with you. And after which anything you keep, that's the point of payment. Right. I think for us to try before you buy thing, <laughs> I think people do all the time in terms of like, you know, people like Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing. The way I look at it is people shop online 
get all the pay for stuff online and then they try things on and what they don't like they return and what they do like they keep and we were trying to find a way to reduce returns but also build trust within our consumers or people that are thinking of becoming our consumers but they're scared to take the leap because they haven't heard of us and they haven't heard of the brands that we carry and we decided that the try before you buy scheme would be a way of building trust with um intended consumers and i think for me i'm trying to find a way to bridge the gap between i guess a brick and mortar store experience where you can just come into a store try things on and you don't have to buy it and say no thank you see you soon and that online experience of i've seen this online if only I could come into the store to buy it, but I can't. But I've seen it online. I want to try it on before I put my money on the line. I only really realized this when I was in your store and some guy walked in and started chatting with you and you were being your casual, you know, charismatic self. And he just started saying like, oh yeah, I bought something from you about two years ago. And then he started explaining and describing the item he bought and you knew exactly what item that was. And I've right. got to say like, that's, I, in that moment, I was like, oh, this is not normal. This is, this is special, but it's amazing. So I was wondering, yeah, like, I mean, this personalization, what is what is the value in it for you? And why why are you doing it? Why aren't other schools doing it? Why did I think it wasn't normal? I think it's not normal because most retail businesses think about money first. Um, it's about margins. It's about how much volumes we can push because everything is about marketing. It's all about what do we tell you that you need and how many of you can we convince that you need it in order to turn over a profit. And I feel like when corporations and retail businesses think like that, there isn't any room for personalization and experiences. And when experiences comes in, experiences and concept stores come in when they feel like it's a cool thing to do to get your money. And it's not about how can I engage with that consumer? Because let's face it, personalization experiences take a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of money. And so it is not in the best interest of the bigger retailers to do it or to do it authentically, but it's a lot easier for us because that's what our business model is based upon. It's based upon community feel personalization. And that goes from our buying strategy to our marketing, to the staff, to our long growth strategy. And it's always gonna be ingrained in whatever we do. But for other brands and other retailers, I would speak for them in the fact that it's all about numbers. And I know that because our profit margins, because of the way we approach the retail industry is super small. We, we don't, we don't look at our margins as well as, as much as we look at our personalization um, experiences. So it's personalization first and then margins second. Um, and that is a really fucked up way of looking at business, but that's what gives me fulfillment. And I feel like if I was doing it the other way around, I would lose every passion for why I got into the business of fashion initially, and which was to change the ideology of consumerism um, and to change it to human first. And, and I think that you can do that and be profitable. And I just feel like you just have to be, you have to think about longevity. And then that's important. The fact that you go abroad to personally source every single item and to understand right. from the co-founder, the founder, the CEO 
of the brand's point right. of view, what they have to bring to the table, so you can communicate right. that to your consumers. But right. you know, most other brands aren't doing this. Most other stores aren't doing this because there's a significant time cost to this. And there's risk, and there's a lot of risk to it. I mean, who wants to take that risk? Who who wants to who wants to um, put their neck on the line for brands they don't know that they don't know whether you know? Are, are, and, and then in margins is like why? And you know what some of these brands do? Side note, they will go to Korea, steal their ideas, get samples, and just copy it. And they just, but they never give credit to the individual brands. I have no shame into telling you that I fly to Korea, I fly to Japan, fly to Nigeria, Ivory Coast, to go and find brands that are doing something cool. Um, they might be rough on the edges, but there's something interesting about them. But these bigger corporate brands, they would go to those countries, they will steal the ideas. In fact, they don't even have to fly to those countries anymore because they have to quarantine. Um, they would just go on their Instagram and steal the ideas and just, just by looking at the images, copy those things, and then sell it as their own ideas. Mm. Because the, the world right now is all about how quickly can I do over on someone and grow my 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 margins mm. and my capitalism and how much money can I make? And then so that's the focus and that's the problem. Whereas my focus is how can I grow with these brands in a way that keeps my community coming back. And then our community is not just a consumer, it's also just, it's also the designers. I love that you're respecting the designer because I think that is genuinely what you touched upon, such a problem. I don't know if you follow Diet Prada on Instagram, mm -hmm. but they're constantly pointing out like, dude, you just stole this small designer's brand yeah. and that is not cool. Yeah, so I, I sound like I go away looking for these international brands and I'm, I'm just using the excuse to travel the world, but I feel like there's just something about telling the stories of other cultures as well that we don't necessarily get to see because we are just known for cultural um, appropriation or I guess misappropriation most of the time and without cultural appreciation. And I, I am honest into telling you where my brands are from and where, where, and where they're going. And I, and I think that's important. So I just wanted to know personally what it's like going abroad to source and pitch to small independent brands in markets that you might be unfamiliar with. Now, can you talk us through the process? Right. I mean, right now, a lot of the brands that we work with are from South Korea, Japan. Um, we've just done a collaboration with a brand from Nigeria. Um, so I love my job in that perspective because I get to meet really cool designers from all over the world that are doing super cool things that we've probably have never seen and they're really passionate about what they do and i love that they locally source their fabric i love they don't they don't mass produce i love that they think about the consumer i love that they think about the retail price and the value for money um, of their product so part of my job and part of the things i love about my job is getting to learn the stories of these brands at first hand, going to their showrooms, going to their factories, getting to know their families, being taken out to dinner by them some some points and, and seeing how they work and their work processes. Because then when I come back home with these brands, I'm able to transcend those energy that I've received from them and their passion to the consumers. Not only that, I'm able to transcend those values and communicate their brand values to the people who work for us so that they can have that energy when they're talking to consumers about the brand. So there's a level of product knowledge that I get by being the ones that meet the brands and that you wouldn't be able to get if you just went into a showroom and bought, you know, the bigger brands. And one of the things that I love about my job 
actually, is being able to find or discover a new brand that stays with us for a year or two or six months, and then go on to do big and better things. They're snapped up by Netaporta, Farfetch, and Browse, because it shows that we are always ahead of our game and that we are always looking for the next best thing before the the big dogs, I guess, before they discover them. And those are some of the things that I'm proud of, the ability to have the eye to see what's coming next. And and by meeting these guys up, it's always it's always a pleasure. Um, and I've got ample of, of stories of brands that we've worked with and then we've had sneaky buyers come into the store and then take pictures of their tags. And then the next season, we see them in their, in their, in their, in their retail store. So it just shows that we're doing something right when we get bigger retailers coming into our store to discover new brands. So for you, like, what is style and what are you looking for in particular when you're sourcing brands abroad? I think I've learned to not impose my individual style on our consumer. Um, otherwise, I would be the only consumer, not just another store. But I think I've learned that style is all about comfortability. Um, it's all about how you feel when you wear something. And, you know, feeling comfortable in your own skin is the, one of the most important things that you can feel. And that that affects your confidence. It affects the way you approach your day. It affects the way you approach your 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 boyfriend, your husband, your wife, your partner. Um, I feel like your style is it's an expression or an extension of your expression. And so for me, and, and I guess that's why you you can resonate with with not just another store, and I can resonate with not just another store, even though you and I have different styles, because not just another store does not box itself into curating a certain type of style because we don't believe that there should be just one type of style we believe that people determine what style they have and style is all about how you feel when you wear a piece of clothes do you feel comfortable or do you continuously check yourself to, or check other people for approval of how you you look and if you can walk out of your house without looking for approval from others or you can leave your house without continuously adjusting what you're wearing because you feel uncomfortable i think then you're you've hit your sense of style um and that's part of the role that we see ourselves in um as innovators that you call us is actually getting people who feel low in confidence to feel like they can get away with certain things that we sell and still be comfortable um, because there are people whose confidence have been bitten down because they've gained weight or because they've been told that certain things that they love wearing doesn't look so great on them. And so our, our job and our mission is to reignite your comfortability level. And so I see not just another store as comfort first and then anything else is all about how you feel. Not, not what we impose on you as what we consider style. I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on fast fashion in particular? I mean, we always encouraging cost customers to buy less and buy better. And then I think that's all I can say about that is like, um, there's nothing wrong with being interested in fashion and, 
and spoiling yourself and, and using fashion as a sense of therapy um, and, and using it as a part of, you know, your lifestyle and using it as a, a sense of expression. But there's also something about buying consciously and buying to support independent designers, not buying things that hurt the environment. Um, and, and you can do that consciously by not thinking that you continuously have to buy all the time, but learning to buy things that are great quality and for a longevity rather than buying for like buying snacks. You know, you can't buy clothes that you buy snacks. And I always use this analogy, which is we all care about what type of food we eat because we know that the type of foods we eat can infect our internal organs, right? So we care about our health. We care about what we take in because we care about how long we're going to live. But we necessarily don't care about what we wear because we can't see the damage it's doing to us because we are far removed from the damage of mass production of wastage on the planet. You know, we don't think about it because it doesn't necessarily affect us immediately, but our diet does. So we think about grass fed chicken and organic market, this and organic this, because we know that what we eat affects our health, but we don't necessarily put the same value and the same weight on what we wear because we're far removed from that. We, we look at that as the corporate responsibility of people who sell us the clothes, but actually it comes from consumerism because if we're not buying that much, the people that sell it to us will have to think about how much they're producing. And that's the first fundamental rule. Going on to the section of the podcast, which we refer to Real Talk. These are the questions right. that we all want to know the answer to, but are often too shy or too afraid to ask. That brings me on to the first right. one. If you could change one thing about society, what would it be? Oh, um, there's two things I've been thinking about lately. The first part, if I, if I could change anything about society, I would change the way we, we interact with each other and that whole ideology of first impressions rather than learned impressions. I think, and hear me out here, I feel like we... We, we, we are so fixated on our first impression of people. So what you see of them is what you decide of them until maybe you have a bit of time to get to know them a bit more. And then maybe you might change your mind and maybe you might not change your mind. But it's not always necessarily the case that you give them that time to redeem themselves or for you to change your ideology of who you thought they were. So that first impression ideology is what I wish I could change because it would solve a lot of inequalities. It would change the way black people were looked at. It would change the way homosexuality was approached and people who are homosexuals. It would change the way we looked at people. We would look at characters first before we looked at the physical appearance or the, the color or the way someone's dressed. Um, so if there was first and first and foremost something that I would love to change about society, it would be the ideology of first impressions. If there was something else that I would change, and it's something that is a new phenomenon in society, it's the cancelling culture. It's that whole, this person has done this, we cancel that person. Um, because I'm a Christian. And, you know, one of the things I've learned about my values as a Christian is the ability to make mistakes and, and still be at one with the universe and at one with people. And that mistake doesn't define who you are at that present moment, let alone determine who you can be in the future if you're brought in and included in conversations that might change your value in the long term. And I think that 
that is the ability of giving people chances the chance that you might be able to be afforded when you make mistakes in the future so by immediately counseling someone because they have made a mistake that you see or you deem as wrong without looking at the individual personality is unfair and i think that that is the ability to if i had one if I had a magic power and a superpower i'd want us to stop counseling people and start including people in conversations that might change their values and, and their ideology about things that, that are wrong in society or social norms. Yeah, I think context is so important and it's something that is lost in the cancel culture movement for sure. And that brings me on to the question that I'm so drawn to your optimism, to your charisma, but I'm you know conscious that it can't always be sunshine and roses. And despite being London, such a multicultural environment, I've experienced some xenophobia lately due to my Chinese heritage and sadly the ongoing COVID pandemic, which made me think right. as a person of color, have you encountered any racism on your entrepreneurial journey? Um, I actually say something about your xenophobia comment because my friend who, my really close friend who's Korean, um, he's always really uh, conscious of it. And during lockdown, we went for a walk and, um, this old lady, Caucasian lady, saw him and was like, she like literally faced the wall and like had her hands to her head and like covered her nose. And I was, and then I, I, I didn't notice that she was doing that because of him. Cause I, I, I would, I, cause I'd find that ridiculous, right? Because Korean had, Koreans had the lowest death, lowest infections. They dealt with it really quickly in comparison to Europe. So, you know, my, my, my Leonard self would not imagine anyone doing that to Asian people because they dealt with the pandemic way better than we have, you know, because I'm really aware. But he said to me, Joa, did you see that? I said, see what? He said, that lady, you see the way she reacted to me? And I was like, I saw what she was doing, but I thought she was just in her own little world. It was like, no, this has happened to me so many times since the beginning of the pandemic. And I said to him, bro, that's the difference between ignorance and and being Leonard and being understanding of people's cultures. And if you all you read is Daily Mail and all you read is um, the Sun newspaper and you have no friends and you read Breitbart all day, you're obviously going to have one dimensional thinking. For me, uh, as a black person who owns a business in the creative industry, have I overtly uh, experienced discrimination? I would say no. Have I covertly experienced loads of discrimination yes um i know other counterparts to, not to denounce their value and their their business and what they have but who've probably been doing this less time than i have who don't struggle when it comes to raising finance who don't struggle when it comes to um um collaborations and mm. and you know partnerships but I know what we have to go through to, to get those type of things. And because when they see a last name like Adebayo or, or a form quota that says that I'm black British, I know there's a, there's a skepticism that, that comes with that ideology. And I've always been taught by my parents that I have to work extra hard and I have to double my effort because, you know, I live in a society that is predominantly white. And so, I have to work harder than my white counterpart in order to achieve, you know, 
just 70% of what they would achieve when they're working at a normal rate. I get it. Part of the reason why I left my job as a civil servant is because I felt like I was never going to be um, promoted to the value of my knowledge and my skill set because the color of my skin. I was not the stereotypical um, poster boy that could represent the Department for Education in the way that they wanted. And and but I was smart. I was included in every policy making meeting because they valued my opinion up until the point where it was in the office, but didn't value it up until the point where I could be the face of the policy or be the one heading that report. And it's something that I've had to deal with the, all my life, but goes back to what I, am, I was talking about in terms of society, is that I don't take that personal anymore. I take that as a challenge to myself to be able to look that as a challenge and take that as something about making a way for other people coming behind me and changing the ideas of the younger generations of Caucasians and white people around me so that they, when they are in the position of power, because they will be, they can include more people of color. They can have more representation in the boardroom because they now understand that they had an encounter with a guy years ago before they had that position. And it was lovely. It was just like them. They resonated with him. He was a cool guy. And so when they are bringing people in to their team and they're engaging um, and engaging with, you know, new partnerships, they won't think of people of color as an alien and they can include them. And that's important. And I see my job now, not only to grow my business and build a legacy, but that is part of the legacy is an, in, in building and sustaining a business in a hard economy as a person of color with lack of opportunity, I can change the mindset of my white counterparts. And I can show people of color that it's possible without having to play the victim culture um, as much because no point in me dwelling in my sorrow. Yeah, I think that's such a positive way to approach life. So I just wanna thank you so much for your real talk. And we've just got one more question left in the talk tank. And that's if you could invite anyone in the world for an interview, who would you invite? I love Kanye. I am um, a big Kanye fan. Um, I, I like him because he's so unconventional. Um, he transcends, you know, the ability to think you can't do anything. He lives outside of the social norm and value that we all live by that bravery and that confidence to do things in his own way, even whether whatever is underqualified, it, it doesn't stop him. And that, that energy um, that that people might consider to be arrogant, but last to me, I think it's more of a confidence in his God-given talent and his ability to try and fail without feeling that he's being judged um, is is just. Uh, admiring. Mm. So if I, if, I, if I could interview anyone in this world, it would be Kanye West, I, I, I think. And also he's funny. You know? His humor, his facial expressions, his, his sarcasm is it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. He's so fearless. And I think a lot of us can yeah. learn from him. Thank you so much, Joelle, for joining us at the Talk Tank and sharing your insights. Everyone visit not just another store in Shoreditch and check out the Instagram. Thanks for tuning in to the Talk Tank. See you next week or leave a message after the beep.